I'm Evan Knappen, and welcome to Gun Lawyer. Say, you know, I just came back from the Blade Show in Atlanta. Oh, that's one of my favorite places to go. It's the national largest Blade Show in the world. The something called the International Cutlery Fair, but it is basically a thousand tables of everybody who's anybody in the world of knives. <clears throat> and I have always been a big fan of knives. I like guns. I like knives just as much. And um, I have quite a background with knives. As a matter of fact, when I was in college, I worked at a knife store. I worked in Herder's Cutlery in the in the mall in the old days when they used to actually have a knife store in the mall. Can you imagine such a thing? We're lucky if there's even a mall around these days. And uh, working in the Herder's Cutlery, that's also where I met the love of my life. I met my wife, who worked at Friendly's Restaurant, and that's how we met in the mall. What a story, huh? There you go. But um, it has always been a subject that I, 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 I love. I love knives, and no question about it. And there are many of you out there, I'm sure, that have similar similar fans for uh for edged weapons of all type and um the blade show is just the ultimate in that and you know i've had cases many different cases in my career dealing with knives and uh have been on the forefront of many of the fights for our knife rights now remember the second amendment is the right to keep and bear arms it's not the right to keep and bear guns. So arms are, of course, include uh, knives. So it's a Second Amendment um, issue. Absolutely, it is a Second Amendment issue. And it's even recognized in the seminal key uh, Second Amendment cases like Heller and McDonald. There's commentary about knives as well being uh, protected. And it is it is an area that is astounding in its success, believe it or not, in terms of the fight for knife rights. I'm going to get into that in a little bit because it's really worth noting and, and understanding because uh, in many ways the knife rights movement is absolutely outshining and outstripping the uh, gun rights movement, and there's many reasons why that is. Uh, and it's great that these kind of successes are taking place. In my practice, I, you know, in New Jersey, New Jersey state law is one of the very minority of states left that still bans possession of switchblade, dagger, dirk, stiletto, etc. And they uh, do have those bans, but there is an exception in New Jersey's law to the ban. And it has to do with whether you, you can show the burdens on you as a defendant. Isn't that nice? You have to be able to show that you have a what essentially is a manifest lawful purpose for why you might have this. And if you can demonstrate that, then you can get yourself within the exemption. I had one case where I had a fellow who was arrested. He was charged with possessing a, basically a wonderful collection, a $25,000 collection of uh, switchblades which today we call automatic knives, which played is kind of an old vintage term, but it's still in the law. 
so we have to still use it. And he was charged, but you know what I was able to do in that case was I was able to show that he was a collector, that every knife had a historical or otherwise artistic or mechanical uh, uniqueness to it that made it a collectible. I showed that he, you know, subscribed to the collector magazines, including Blade Magazine. I showed that he belonged to collector clubs, including Arms Collector Club, and painted the entire picture very clearly that he was a collector and that he had these knives possessed for that purpose. And I was able to get him inside the exemption. And believe it or not, in the state of New Jersey, we got the charges dismissed and his knife collection returned. So it was quite a fight, but we were able to do it. It's On one hand, it was great to save him and his collection. But on the other hand, it's really ridiculous that there are these laws that put a burden of, of proof on the owner to prove that they're within some exemption. That's why in New Jersey, I always say you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. And that's actually how the law works. It switches the burden onto you to prove your innocence. Now, for those of you who don't you know, live in New Jersey or have, say, uh, residences in other states or even vacation homes in other states, Every state has its own uh, or lack of, of knife laws. Uh, there is, of course, the federal law that we'll talk about in a minute. And the question is, you know, how are things going in terms of state law and the knife liberty movement? And I can tell you that this has always been a passion of mine. And in 2010, I saw an opportunity in New Hampshire because New Hampshire still had a knife ban that prohibited switchblade, dagger, dirk, and stiletto. And I said, you know, this really needs to be repealed, and I think that it could happen in New Hampshire. So I, I spearheaded the effort. I got some legislators to work with me, and I got together with Knife Rights, who eagerly uh, jumped on board and we got ourselves a, a fundraised for a lobbyist here and in 2010 new hampshire became the beginning of the knife liberty movement in which new hampshire repealed all its knife laws and in addition to the repeal of the knife laws including the ban on switchblades they also enacted what is called preemption, so that towns and cities couldn't pass their own knife law. It's all up to the state if the state's going to have any knife laws. And in 2010, New Hampshire became essentially one of the freest knife states in the country. There were no knife laws anymore. You could buy, sell, own, carry, possess under state law any type of knife. And the only restriction is that you couldn't bring it into a, a courthouse under state law. And what made it even more unbelievable is that we were able to accomplish the repeal of the switchblade ban in a legislature that was majority controlled by Democrats, both houses, and a governor's 
that was Democrat. That's right. New Hampshire, many of you may not know, is one of the th third largest governing bodies in the, in the world. New Hampshire actually has 400 legislators, 400 in the House, 24 senators, and a governor. So there's literally 425 people that get to have a say on any, on any bill. And in the case of the knife law bills, brace yourself for this, we got a unanimous vote. Can you imagine 425 politicians agreeing to anything? No less unanimous on the repeal of the ban on switchblade, dagger, dirk, and stiletto. And the fact that we could get that done in New Hampshire really lit the fuse for the knife rights movement, and knife rights has taken the forefront on this movement. And today, with it beginning in New Hampshire in 2010, it is really astounding to know that that 16 switchblade bans or restrictions have been completely repealed. 16 states have knife freedom since 2010. That includes Alaska, Indiana, Kansas, Maine, Missouri, Montana, New Hampshire, of course, Nevada, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Wisconsin. Do you know that, that there are that 44 states in America, when it comes to knives, 44 states, allow possession to one degree or another, and that 34 states in America have no restriction on possession or everyday, even open carry, 34 states. And 29 states allow concealed carry. What does this tell you? This tells you that a majority of the states have knife freedom. And it really uh, makes you wonder why there is a federal prohibition on these knives at all when the majority of states do not prohibit. They uh, are in readily and rapidly repealing even if they do and other than the standard holdouts that you would expect you know when anything coming to any type of weapon you know new jersey and new york etc you don't see you know them doing it but the majority of america is pro-knife and the majority of america uh, has knife liberty and so why do we have a federal law the Federal Switchblade Act, that prohibits the interstate, you know, uh, transactions in switchblades. And that goes back, and it's an interesting study because the switchblade law federally is really an enormous propaganda effort that began in 1950, basically. And this effort 
really mirrors what we see the anti-gun folks doing today. They take some firearm or knife that they can scare the public about, and then they use that to get legislation through that is sweeping and creating uh, bans on our freedom and liberty. And if you look at the history of the switchblade law, you can see this in action and learn from it. The modern federal switchblade ban actually began, you can literally trace it to this, an article in the November 1950 Woman's Home Companion. And that article was called, ready for this, folks? The Toy That Kills. That's right, The Toy That Kills. And what did they do? Stir up the moms. Gee, what's that anti-gun group funded by Bloom Turd called? Oh, yeah, moms, right? Moms needing action all the time they need action. No, it's moms demand action, right? Why? The moms, the moms. Where do they get that from? Well, the surprising success of the political propaganda that you can take something and scare the hell out of the moms. And this is a tactic. And that's why switchblades, eight years from this article, by the way, this, this article, this muckraking, ridiculous article that just... Uh, it was full of lies, full of just garbage. You know who wrote it? The guy who wrote it was Jack Harrison Pollock. And guess what he was? Not just a freelance writer, but a ghost writer for then-Senator Harry Truman. So there's your political operative creating an issue, getting it into the women's home companions, scaring the moms, and now they have something they can run around and make it, like they're doing something about youth violence when they're not. And then you combine with it the scary, scary stuff that Hollywood was producing, right? West Side Story, Rebel Without a Cause, 12 Angry Men, what are all, Switchblade in the whole thing, Switchblade, Propaganda Switchblade. There it is. If we ban Switchblades, we'll end youth violence, you know. Eight years later, we get the Federal Switchblade Act. This is what we saw. And it has really become completely obsolete. For over 30 years, attorney Evan Knappen has seen what rotten laws do to good people. That's why he's dedicated his life to fighting for the rights of America's gun owners. A fearsome courtroom litigator fighting for rights justice and freedom an unrelenting gun rights spokesman tearing away at anti-gun propaganda to expose the truth author of six best-selling books on gun rights including napping on gun law a bright orange gun law bible that sits atop the desk of virtually every lawyer police chief firearms dealer and savvy gun owner that's what made evan napping america's gun lawyer Gun laws are designed to make you a criminal. 
Don't become the innocent victim of a vicious anti-gun legal system. This is the guy you want on your side. Keep his name and number in your wallet and hope you never have to use it. But if you live, work, or travel with a firearm, the deck is already stacked against you. You can find him on the web at evannappen.com or follow the link on the Gun Lawyer resource page. Evan Knappen, America's Gun Lawyer. You're listening to Gun Lawyer with attorney Evan Knappen. Available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So the area of uh, switchblade law and its history is really fascinating, and it illustrates what we need to know in terms of our gun rights, and there's much that can be learned from it. But before I get further into that, I do want to just mention to you to uh, uh, help keep a fellow gun owner and knife owner from becoming a law-abiding criminal. Tell them to listen to Gun Lawyer Radio. Visit our website at gun.lawyer and take a look at our inner circle. It's on our website and sign up for inner circle. And you're going to get the inside from me, Evan Knappen. I'll give you tricks, tips, insights. Sign up. It's free. It's fun. Please help me communicate with you to touch base. Let me know what's so I can let you know what's going on and your friends because big tech, they don't care about our gun rights. They don't like us. They're trying to shut us down. You know, it's uh, really something with... Uh, with big tech uh, just trying to silence us. So this radio show and inner circle is ways we can stay informed as we fight the fights that we have to fight. So please subscribe, join the inner circle, and help me get the word out. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. I'm depending on you for that, and it's very important. I also would like to mention my good friend Mitch Rosen, who makes, I believe, the finest gun leather. And I carry his rig all the time. And I like you to know about it because I think you will appreciate just how incredible his products are. That's it, Mitch Rosen, Extraordinary Gun Leather. So this is uh, really something in terms of the progress that Knife Liberty Movement has made. And when you think about it, it is really something if you compare to the movement in gun rights. And the gun rights movement has been very successful in one very important key area, extremely successful in the area of our ability to carry a firearm concealed and for self-defense. Now, granted, there are some really tough states, some holdouts that are just so stubborn and refuse to get with the modern view of freedom, you know, New Jersey, New York. Again, the same usual suspects. But majority of America, overwhelming, has adopted not just shall-issue carry permits, but many constitutional carry states, including Texas recently became becoming and passing the constitutional carry where you carry with no permit and when you look at the movements with guns and you look at movements with knives you can learn from these movements how our adversaries act and what they'll do and how to counter it and when you think that in new hampshire we could get an entire democrat controlled government to have a unanimous vote on this 
It is really astounding. And how did we do it? Well, we did it by education. We did it by showing that the automatic knife or switchblade is actually something that should not be banned and, in fact, is a safer knife. It's safer because it's one of the few folding knives that actually lock closed as well as open. And most automatics have that ability to lock closed with a safety that other folders do not have. And so why do we ban the safer knife? It's stupid. And by the way, what is the big deal about an automatic knife? What makes it so intrinsically dangerous? Why is it, quote, the toy that kills? First of all, it's not a toy. It's a tool. And it doesn't kill. People kill. And whether or not you can open your knife with one hand, which can be very helpful when you're holding rope, when you're engaged in any cutting, even in a utilitarian manner, to be able to have one-hand access. But even as fast as you might be able to get a switchblade to open, it is never as fast as a fixed blade. Because a fixed blade, you just draw out of the sheath. End of story. There's no opening it at all. So why is it that a knife that uh, can open with one hand suddenly has some uh, intrinsically evil quality about it as opposed to any other knife, including a kitchen knife, that we don't have to open at all? There's no logic to it. It's just stupid. It's hopalophobia, you know, a fear of weapons. And this is what we are constantly having to fight and face. And the fear is hyped by the media, and it has been apparently their mission to destroy our rights under the Second Amendment, both with knives and guns. But the success of the knife rights movement now has made it so that there really is no more need for a federal switchblade prohibition. It's archaic. It's back passed in the 50s. One of the things we said in New Hampshire was, uh, look, the sharks and the jets, uh, they're in their 80s now, and you don't have to worry about switchblades anymore, okay? You know, it's uh, absurd. And they don't. And the automatic knife has such an important utilitarian function. And if we can get to the goal, which is not just the states legalizing and removing these absurd bans on our liberty and on our freedom, but also to get the federal law finally repealed, finally get it repealed, because it's only such a handful of minority states, we don't need this federal law, then we get rid of the base of the federal knife law. Because if we eliminate the federal switchblade law, then we no longer have any federal knife law. And that's great because look at what happened in the gun rights. We get the 34 NFA Machine Gun Act, and then what's built on that? The 68 Gun Control Act, and then what's built on that? Well, the 94 Assault Weapon Band is built on that. Build, build, build. Well, we need to take it the opposite direction. We need to get rid of the knife laws, as well as the gun laws. And this is the goal. And until there, is, there isn't, at this time, luckily, an organized anti-knife movement in America, they're focused on guns and the elitist 
money is, uh, you know, Bloomberg and Soros, etc., going toward guns. Yet in England, in the UK, where they have uh, effectively banned firearms, there's a huge anti-knife movement because they need some other boogeyman. They can't keep blaming guns. They passed all the gun laws to disarm to the maximum they could get away with there. So what do you have? You have knife laws being put forward. You have bans on pointy kitchen knives. You have Britain passing the Knife Act where they can search you at any time for a knife. And you cannot have any kind of knife on your person carry. Uh, it, it is absolute the opposite of knife freedom. And the media is completely behind it there. They even have these bins, these metal bins. like They look like the bins we might donate clothing to called knife surrender bins where they want you to just go and surrender your knife into these bins. Isn't that nice? No compensation, nothing. Yeah, so don't think it can't happen here because it can. Gun control efforts in the U.S., the modern gun movement, actually came here from England after World War II. It started across the pond and then infected us, and that's where the fight became, and it's true. So don't think we can't have a anti-knife movement. We absolutely could, and we need, to, we need to preempt that now. We're doing a good job of it, but we still need to fight. So I would, I would really strongly recommend, if you care about knives as much as you care about guns and care about our Second Amendment rights, I would really urge you to join and become a member of Knife Rights. My good friend Doug Ritter, who's actually been on the show before, he's the head of Knife Rights, and he's the chairman. And I'll tell you what else is cool going on with Knife Rights. If you go to KnifeRights.org, they're running the Ultimate Steel right now. That's S-T-E-E-L. The Ultimate Steel is a huge drawing where you can get your choice of over $125,000 in knives, guns, and more. And it's it's an awesome uh, raffle that they use for fundraising. And I've been lucky in it. And I'll tell you, it's a good thing. Jump on donating to Knife Rights. This is how they raise their money so they can keep up this great work in Knife Liberty. And you can really end up with some nice prizes uh, if you get lucky. So look at the ultimate steal. Go to KnifeRights.org. And we've got to stay in this important fight for our knife rights that we are actually making incredible success at. Do you know, one of the things that led to the success as well is the classic, and again, we can learn from this, the classic loophole, the loopholes having freedom find a way. So what are some loopholes here that have actually made knife liberty and the general public having an appreciation for the advantage of a one-hand opening knife? And that has to do with the advent of the assisted opener and the just even the one-hand opener and just how utilitarian and helpful having a folding knife 
that you can open with one hand. And the assisted opener is also incredibly important because what the assisted opener does is when you push open a blade, about 25 to 30% open, the spring inside continues the opening of the blade. If you've ever taken a folding knife, even like a Cub Scout knife or a Swiss Army knife, and you open it a certain degree, not fully open, maybe 70%, and you let it go, click, the blade still goes into place, right? Well, that's the principle of assisted opener, only instead of it happening at 70% open, it happens when you get 25 to 30%, and it continues with its opening. And folks look and say, okay, that's a switchblade, but it is not a switchblade. Because in order to fall under the definition of switchblade, it has to have a button or other device in the handle that makes the blade open automatically. And there is no button or other device in the handle. It is simply starting the blade, and then the blade finishes opening by itself. It's almost, arguably, the evolution of a better one-handed knife than even a classic switchblade, in a way. Because without the button, you now have less parts. It's simpler to make. And if for some reason the spring were to break, you can still open an assisted opener manually. Yet with an automatic knife, if the button breaks, you could have a problem getting that knife open. But with an assisted, you wouldn't. But of course, most assisted knives do not lock closed where an automatic knife uh, does lock closed. So these are trade-offs, but really distinguishing between an assisted opener and that blade opening fast and an automatic knife and that blade opening fast, both being one-hand openers, the average person in public really would have a difficult time, I believe, trying to distinguish why would one of these be legal and one of them not. And yet the utilitarian value of the assisted opener, where you could buy assisted openers in you know, Walmart even, you know, general everywhere uh, for use, and they became so accepted, has made the ban on switchblade that much more irrelevant and stupid. And so that loophole, if you will, of, of the workaround of avoiding the button in the handle has really led to an entire liberty movement of being able to repeal obsolete, stupid laws that infringe on our freedom. And it's interesting to look at it from that perspective and just see how great it is. And I was proud to say that I helped when we changed the federal switchblade law because there were assisted openers and some folks, some states and even customs were looking at imported assisted openers and saying, oh, no, no, these are switchblades. But they weren't because they didn't have a button in the handle. But they were trying to say they were. And we were able, Knife Rights and other groups together, we were able to get the federal switchblade law changed. First time since the 1950s, we were able to get added in there to the definition that assisted openers absolutely were not switchblades and not part of that definition. And by changing that and making it crystal clear, 
Customs could no longer play the games they wanted to play on stopping the import, and assisted openers could become quite plentiful in the U.S. And this is what we saw. And it's changed the whole mindset of the country. And I know this is just knives, but it's a micro, sh a micro shot of how this all works when you are a fighter for freedom and you want to see these laws change. And the loophole ability can create and does create more freedom and more acceptance and more understanding of the total elimination of the bar that's standing in the way of our freedoms. And knife rights is a great example of how that has worked. You know, there's also uh, loopholes in a way as to the ability to have and produce and manufacture switchblades or automatic knives. Like I remember when I was, you know, 17, 18, and I loved knives, but you were fortunate if you found an old, you know, Italian stiletto type switchblade or something somebody had brought back from Europe. You know, that was it. There was nothing domestically produced. They were rare, collectible, you know, unless it was left over before the federal ban. And then suddenly, it seemed, there was this growth, and the growth took place after the Dariani decision in Oregon, where the Supreme Court of Oregon found that the Oregon Second Amendment protected knives, that it was a protect, and it invalidated the switchblade prohibition in Oregon. And that started what became a domestic manufacturing business where we saw companies, including uh, Benchmade and others, uh, produce automatic knives. But how could they be sold when there's, quote, the federal ban? Well, the federal ban is not on possession of a switchblade. It's on the interstate commerce in the switchblade. Literally, that's what's banned. The only places federally that ban possession are the Indian territories. It actually says that in the law. I'm not just calling them Indian territories. It actually says the Indian territories and, uh, and such. But possession is not banned in the state, just the interstate. So how do you get from Oregon to another state with a switchblade that is regulated, controlled by federal law. And there is a way to do it because another law passed that had to do with the mailing and shipping and an exemption was set up in it uh, on bona fide dealers to and for law enforcement and those with government contract particularly. And by doing that, they were able to get distribution through the U.S. to the states. And this is uh, really great as the number of both automatics and assisted openers and knife freedom has marched along, and it is something we can be proud of to see actual liberty growing. So I'd uh, like to tell you, remember to support knife rights, enjoy and treasure our knives. And this is Evan Knappen reminding you that gun laws don't protect honest citizens from criminals. 
They protect criminals from honest citizens. Gun Lawyer is a Counterthink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. Reach us by emailing evan at gun.lawyer. The information and opinions in this broadcast do not constitute legal advice. Consult a licensed attorney in your state.